This is Arcadia Cast, brought to you by Camp Arcadia on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. Here you get to listen in on the stimulating lectures of thoughtful and engaging Christian leaders from across the country, like extended TED Talks from a Christian perspective. Today's talk is from Dr. Arthur Just, Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. One of the things I do to get ready for my time is I, right at the beginning, I take notes on Scott's outline because I don't have any paper. (laughs) I didn't bring any paper about some of the things I want to start with. And this just shows you how Scott and I, who we determined last uh, night, have been doing this since 2003 together. And we didn't know each other that well beforehand, but we certainly have over the years. I decided to talk about how prayer is, is difficult, that psalms are difficult, and about my own failures with prayer. And look at how he ends. He ends with how prayer is difficult and failure with prayer. So we're thinking on the same, the same thing. Um, I have always struggled with prayer. Uh, it's very difficult for me to pray. I find it's a, a spiritual struggle as well as a personal struggle. Um, I don't know if this obtains to you, but I am not a contemplative person. I'm not a person who, I feel uncomfortable when I just sit and talk to God. It just, I'm just not a, that kind of a person. Some people, I think, are comfortable doing that. Um, I'm not a mystic. That I just, I, that's, but I'm fascinated by mysticism, probably because I don't get it, I, or I can't have that kind of experience. I'm, I'm a, I guess, a very kind of old concrete, you know, cerebral person. So it's, it's always been a struggle for me. Um, one of the things I, that I do is, is I read novels, and um, I'm always fascinated how, and it's not as often as you think, how novelists are able to do what I have, and I think you have, and that is you have this inner conversation with yourself. There's a, there's a conversation that's always running around in your head. You know, and and it's yours, and you very seldom share it with others. And um, I came across a book, if you want to read a great book, a great book, by a great author, Ian McEwen. It's called Saturday. It's It's not a religious book, but it is about a surgeon who has a tragedy in a day. It's all about a day, Saturday. But it's all about his inner conversation. I've never, never read a book like it where, I mean, he, he shares everything that's going on in his head. And it was fascinating for me to see that. And, 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 and I just did it a few years ago. Um, one of the things you have to do when you're a pastor is pray. So I learned to pray as a pastor, especially with people. And I don't know if I was a good prayer or not, but I became very comfortable praying with people, praying in hospitals, praying in sick rooms, praying with the, um, the shut-ins and the like. But Linda and I, in our, my first year in, in the parish, we experienced in her family kind of an unspeakable tragedy. And that really did a number on, I think, both of our prayer lives. It was very hard to pray. And um, it took us a while to come back. I, I finally had to go to 
uh, a good friend. He was my father confessor. He was an older gent, George Krause, lived in the town next door. And I just told him, I mean, he, he said, I, I, don't, I don't know how to pray. And he goes, I got the answer for you, baby. <laughs> He's great. I loved him. He said, do you, have a, uh, do you have a list of the members of your church? I said, yeah, yeah, we do. He said, okay, what you do is take that list and you take 20 names every day and you go into the church and you sit there in the pew and you pray for the 20 names, then you pray for the next day, you pray for the next 20 names. And, and I saw that's, that's how I started to pray again, you know. And that's how I started doing lists. There was a list, I had a list, and all of a sudden it kind of transformed into my own list. I know that sounds like a lot of names, folks, but I've got a lot of people that I, and it's hard to take people off my list, you know? I mean, how do you do that? You take, okay, I'm not praying for you anymore, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like I, tr- I pray for all the saints that are dear to me in Spain. Now, there aren't a lot of them, but there's probably about 40 of them. How do I get rid of them? I don't see them but once a year, but I have such a long history with them. I can't take them off my list. Um, I, 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 I pray for their family. I continue to pray for their family. Yeah, I do. Um, when I was a seminary professor, I, you know, you don't have a parish, so you stop praying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, you stop praying with people. You know, you don't do public prayer. I mean, I would pray in class, but I mean, it's a little different. Um, and one of the things I, I realized early on is that my students were struggling with prayer and devotional life, beating themselves up about it, you know? And I, and I had to write an essay, and this is the, these, writing essays kind of makes you do things, about the devotional life of the pastor. Now, I was always interested in devotional life. In fact, I wrote a little book on visitations, which is about devotional life. So, I mean, what do you use? What do you read? That kind of thing. And one of the things that I found in writing that book on the devotional life of the pastor is that, and I'm talking now about pastors, but I think you can relate to this. We always kind of looked at what we did like to prepare for Bible study or sermons as sort of a technical, scientific study of the scripture. And what I began to realize is that what I did in the parish, and I didn't probably even know that I was doing it, is that when you prepare to preach to your people or prepare a Bible study or even go out and visit the sick, that is devotional. That is prayerful. And um, that, that, that little essay I did, and I've given it in many, many places, it, it, it's gotten more resonance than a lot of, I even published it. Um, I think I, I help students help myself realize that everything we do is prayerful, is devotional, and that we can't beat ourselves up about it. It is important to intentionally sit down and pray as often as you can. I think finding a time to pray is important. You're going to see, I'm going to talk about the liturgy of the hours a little bit here. People prayed at certain hours. <coughs> If I don't pray, I was talking about this with Miguel last night, if I don't pray early in the morning, I sometimes don't pray. Because you get busy and, uh, you know, and then, uh, the heck with it, I'll pray tomorrow, you know. Um, I'm very fortunate because I go to chapel every day at the seminary, so I get to pray every morning at 10 o'clock. That counts. <laughs> That's a, you know, <laughs> it works, you know, I mean. So what I'm, what I'm saying to you is, we struggle with it. Even people who talk about it, teach it, 
write about it. It's hard. Prayer is hard. And I think Scott really gave you a sense of that. And I, I don't know that I can say this of Jesus. I don't want to, you know, get into Jesus' head. But if he was tempted as we are in every way except without sin, I think he was sometimes tempted not to pray. I think it's one of the biggest temptations we have to just give up praying or let praying go. And, and Scott was brilliant on one of the reasons why, and that is the attacks of Satan, that we live in a world in which Satan is always on us. So, now to get seminary professor-like, okay, we'll, we'll look at, uh, I, I've entitled this, Jesus Prayers the Psalms of Lament from the Cross. And he really, I think, prays all the Psalms, but the Psalms of Lament are the ones that really have come down to us. Now, let's just look at Good Friday, okay? I have a, I did this this morning. I, I usually have a, a thing that I, I use from my commentary, but I couldn't paste it over. Um, so I made one up here, okay? Uh, Good Friday is, of course, 24 hours. And what a lot of people don't realize, that Good Friday starts here at sundown on Thursday. So this is the Thursday for the Jews. And then Sunday, I mean, Saturday, I mean Good Friday, excuse me, Friday starts after sundown. And I've got Passover up here, because Passover is always after the sun goes down. It's probably somewhere, you know, 7, 8 o'clock after sundown. And it lasted a long time, probably all the way till about midnight. I'm going to give you Jesus Good Friday, what, what it was like for him. Then off to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, as we saw yesterday. My guess is that he's in the garden in the early hours of the morning, a couple hours there. Most people think he's, he's arrested in the garden around three in the morning, the, 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 the third watch, I guess it would be, according to Scott. You know, they, they, they observe these hours, you know, the, the, the ones that mark the day. This is a clock, by the way, and I made it red because it's bloody Good Friday. Now, what's interesting to me is between the arrest in the garden until he is, and, and this is going to be here, this is the second 12 hours, he's crucified at 9 a.m. So between his arrest and his crucifixion, these about six hours, Jesus is a busy boy. This is Luke's gospel. He's, he experiences four trials. He's tried before the Sanhedrin, and these are the ones who want him dead. Then he goes to Pilate, declares him innocent, says, I ain't killing this guy, sends him to Herod. Herod beats him up, scourges him, but says, I'm not going to kill this guy. He's innocent. Send him back to Pilate. So this is the second time before Pilate. So Jesus is walking around through the city. Now, it's not a big city, not a lot of distance, but he is. And he's being dragged along, you know, in chains, you know, and humiliated the whole way. Even here, Pilate won't declare him guilty. It's one of the great themes of Luke's gospel, that in the trials before these ruthless Gentiles, they declare him innocent. He's innocent. Then, coming now to the second 12 hours, he's nailed to the tree at 9 a.m. And of course, the Via Dolorosa, I mean, he, he drags that cross to the, to the place of the skull. 
And he's exhausted. You can see he's exhausted. He's been at it a long time. And he's physically been abused. That body, that wonderful body, has been beaten and, and just practically mutilated. This is the third hour. This is when the atonement sacrifices are in the temple. And, of course, the crucifixion begins here. I think this is where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is where he's taunted by the soldiers. If you are the king, come down from there, where all the people taunt him. And then I think right here at this point is where he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's the two absolutions during these hours. And then at this point, the darkness begins. And I think this is, this is when the, the terrors of of hell and you know the forsakenness that he feels that he speaks in Matthew and Mark's gospel my god my god why have you forsaken me Th- those must have been the most horrible hours for Jesus on the cross right there and then he dies at 3 the ninth hour this is the sixth hour ninth hour again atonement sacrifices in the temple so there would be people in the holy place when the temple curtain tears asunder And of course, this is when Jesus dies. And they have to get him down from the cross, anoint his body as best they can, wrap it, and get him buried in a tomb that was only about 30 or 40 yards away, the bottom of the hill. You can read it in John 19. It says, he was buried in the garden in which he was crucified. He has to be buried according to Sabbath law by sundown. Okay? So that's Jesus' Good Friday. Um... Here is the, the court of women, and I, well, I'll show you a picture of the whole temple in a minute, but this is, this is where the sacrifices, sacrifices are being made. Here's the holy place where Zechariah was, where the atonement sacrifices are made. And at, at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, so when Jesus was nailed to the tree and then when he died, this is filled with people praying. This is when they would pray. And Jews prayed out loud. They prayed in public like this. They prayed with their arms, you know, and they would, they would speak. You know the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? That happens here. Pharisee is right here saying, thank God I'm not like the rest of these swine. You know, I give all this money. I tithe, blah, 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 blah. The publican's over here on his face. And you know what he says literally in Luke's gospel? God be merciful is how we translate it. He says, God be merciful propitiated for me a sinner God make atonement for me a sinner why does he say that because he knows that the atonement sacrifices are taking place here so I mean just think of the drama of that good Friday you know these people know stuff is going on I mean Jesus was in here teaching and right outside the doors here teaching let me go to the next slide the temple yeah so uh, this is not good But it's over here where he was. This is the court of women here. Here's the holy place. Here's the holy of holies. And Golgotha is outside the city here a little bit. Um, Why do I have the temple here and then the cross and now the Lutheran divine service? Because they are the same. I mean, one of the things that I began with talking about with you is how one of the great themes of Luke's gospel is the presence of Christ. Where is Christ present? You know, he's present in temple, he's present in synagogue, he's present in the house, he's present where God's word is. 
He's present in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He's present in the incarnate Christ. Uh, That's the temple. That's the temple. Now, where is Christ present? He's present when we gather for baptism, for preaching, for receiving the supper. This, This is the temple of God. Where Christ is present, there is the temple of God. And there, there are two passages that I've always referred to, and you know these, from John 2. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? John answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. And this, in blue here, this is the evangelist John giving us the interpretation. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Ba-boom. And, it, and they, after he was raised from the dead, remember that he said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So wherever Jesus is, there is his temple. The other passage, I, I, I think I did this with this uh, Arcadia many years ago. It's from Acts 15. It's James, the bishop, the brother of Jesus, quoting Amos. You know, and it's a passage I would never quote. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles. This is justification for why the Gentiles should now be included in the church, who are called by my name, unholy people, called by the holy name of Jesus, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now, what's amazing to me about this is the tent of David, okay, rebuild its ruins. You know, people, when they heard this in Acts 15, they're in Jerusalem. The temple is still there. What is James talking about? He's talking, to use Lutheran language, he's talking about the divine service. He's talking about where Christians gather in little places around word and sacrament. That's the new temple. That's, that's where God is present. I love my Spaniards. They don't use this all the time. But you know what they call their church where they gather? Templo. Temple. I love it. I mean, they're they're right. We don't ever use that word, but they use it. It's very important to them. Okay, so here's my point. My point is that at the crucifixion, we have now seen a shift in the locale of God's presence to a place now that becomes the Holy of Holies. And where that Christ crucified and risen from the dead is present, namely, where his word is preached and his sacrament is administered, there is the cross, there is the temple, there is the, the kingdom of God, there's Zion, there's, there, there's the, the heavenly place because heaven and earth are brought together. Some of you know, I know you do, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, we are very fond of Dietrich Bonhoeffer at our seminary. He's a great martyr, he's a great theologian. He's written a lot of great books. Life Together has become sort of a theme of our church, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. You know, it's one of our themes. But I think, for my money, it's a simple little book, and it's not even 100 pages, and you'd be surprised how quickly you can read it. Is this little book, Psalms, the Prayer Book of the Bible. And it's there that I learned how to understand the Psalms. I mean, I always struggled with Psalms. Like, I struggle with prayer, I struggle with Psalms. And I'm a literary guy, it's poetry, but Psalms were hard for me until I began to realize through Bonhoeffer that Jesus is the one speaking the Psalms. 
And I should go back and verify this. I've always said that Bonhoeffer said that Jesus <laughs> prayed all the Psalms during the six hours on the cross. I think it's true, but it may be someone else. And whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter to me. I love the idea. And I think it's very possible. It's one of those things that I call sanctified speculation. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I mean, it, it, I can't verify it. I, there's no way I can prove it to you, but it makes sense to me that our Lord would pray the 150 Psalms. And you can do it in six hours. And he's praying. And what else would he pray? He, I, I think in some ways Jesus is like us. He needs to be given words to pray. And the Psalms give him those words. That's why, just to return to my own personal struggle with prayer, that's why I pray prayers that have been written because they say oftentimes what I myself can't articulate. And I love them. That's why I have a, you know, lots of prayer books that I use to, to pray prayers. And they're, they're always organized, pray for this, pray for that, pray for that. And I, as I said, I wrote a little book on that. Ah, well, look at this. What do I do? Remind me tomorrow, right? Can you see that? Oh, you can't. Good. <laughs> All right. Something's reminding you tomorrow there, Kevin. Okay. Now, just, just to give you a sense of how important the, uh, the Psalms were in the temple, here is the best determination we have. Uh, and this is from a wonderful source, a, a very scholarly source, that these were the Psalms that were used. They had a psalm a day. So they, they had specific psalms that governed their days. Yes, I think so. But during the day, they would also divide and, and pray as many psalms as they could. And here's how they divided them. And this, as, I mean, people who teach the psalms tell me that this is how they teach them. The, the, they got it from the temple liturgy. One of my favorite psalms, by the way, is 41. I prayed it. On Monday, Monday, Sunday, it's the one I used because it's a great, you know, even my friends have risen up against me. It's a great, it's a great psalm. I um, mean, you can see that the, the, you know, Jesus saying that, even my friends, my disciples, my, they've risen up against me. Um, this is from J. Lamb, Psalms in Christian Worship. Daily use of complete psalms, this is in temple and in synagogue. Special psalms for feast days, just like us. They use them liturgically. Oh, Lord, open my lips. That was used in the synagogue. So we borrowed that in Matins. Triennial cycle of psalms. They had a three-year lectionary in the synagogue based on the reading of the Psalter in the temple. Now, that's interesting. The temple, of course, governed everything. They read psalms in the temple. The synagogue imitated it so that they could be doing the same thing. Responses of people to prayers, readings, and benedictions with psalm verses, just like we do. Gradual, you know, is a response. And then this, look at this. Psalter as a source of prayers and the language of prayers. There it is. Baboom. They saw psalms as prayers. They use psalms as prayers. So that's why Jesus does. Because he learned it as he grew up in synagogue and temple. Yes, ma'am. Do modern-day Jews still use and pray all the songs? I have no idea. Sorry. I wish I did. I don't. 
I would, I would imagine, this is a guess, that, that Orthodox Jews do. I would guess that they are very tightly associated with the, the way psalms are, are prayed in, in Christian worship. You can get it on Amazon. Yes. And, and, and you, you, you could get it in a bookstore. Yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and, and, and it's still available. It's still, it's still fun. And it's, I, I remember the first time I read it, I was on a train from Madrid. I remember this very well to... Um, to Barcelona, it took, it's a three hour train ride and I, I read it halfway there. It's a short book, it reads quickly. Now I, I, I'm on a roll here about using Psalms and, and, and prayers. I, I, wa- I just want you to see how Christians kind of embodied this in its fullness in the Benedictine rites, okay? The Benedictine, um, what we call the office of prayer, the, ho- the daily hours. And they chose hours to pray. And, and I just want to point out to start with that three of the hours that are so crucial, praying at certain times is important. Terse, 9 a.m. when Jesus was crucified. Sext, noon when he, the darkness came. And none at 3 p.m. These are the Latin words for those times. But, you know, they prayed in the middle of the night, nocturnes, hear the psalms they used, lauds, matins, hear all the psalms. You can see they had daily psalms. And our Lutheran tradition does use some of these psalms. Prime shortly after daybreak. This is one of the reasons why it was difficult being a monk. You were praying all the time up in the middle of the night, you know? And then, Here's your day. This is when they're working, but they would stop at these times. So this, and then Vespers at the end of the working day and then Compline before bedtime. Now, Luther was an Augustinian, okay? Not a Benedictine, but he was an Augustinian. But the Augustinians used the Benedictine hours. So Luther prayed these when he was a monk. Luther loved the Psalms because he lived the Psalms, which is why one of his first commentary was on the Psalms. And for my money, and this is not my idea, but I totally agree with it, the reason he was a great theologian is because he knew the Psalms and loved them. So Luther is, I mean, we have a great tradition there with Luther. Luther, though, realized this is too much for people, so... He reduced it to three, Matins, Vespers, and Compline. I could go on and on. Matins and Vespers are eschatological, the rising of the sun, the going down of the sun, light and dark. This is very eschatological. You pray before bed. I love the prayers we prayed as a kid. I mean, I still pray it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. I mean, really? Do we want our kids to pray that? (laughs) You know? (laughs) That's eschatological, isn't it? I mean, really. (laughs) But I mean, you know, grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. You know? Peace at the last. That's that's Compline. I love Compline. It's a wonderful thing. So anyway, there are the, the hours, and you can see the Psalms are so much a part of that. They are 
prayers. And then here in the divine service, uh, you probably know this, but the introit is based on the Psalms, the gradualist Psalms, the Alleluia used to be associated with the Psalm. We used to sing Psalms during the offering, Psalm 51 now. During the communion, that before they had hymns or as hymns were being introduced, the main thing they did was sing Psalms, and we do that too. Psalms were, were used it as sort of timeouts. They were contemplative, what I'm not able to do. Psalms allow me to do it. Um, I, you know, I, I love listening to the music during the, the, the distribution of the sacrament. Uh, Kevin is now our contour where I go to church, St. Paul's. Richard Resch was before. Sometimes when they run out of hymns, they do improvisations on the hymns or whatever. And I mean, and I'm listening because I know the texts, and it's, th these guys are brilliant. I mean, we might know something, Scott and I, but they have talent. <laughs> they actually have a gift that's beyond anything. It's so wonderful to listen to them. Okay. 15 more minutes. Here we go. At the end of Luke's gospel, the very last thing Jesus says before he ascends into heaven, which, by the way, he blesses them, and guess what that is? A barakah. Jesus leaves giving them a barakah. So he's, he gives them a Jewish prayer at the end. Th this is, I, I think, one of the greatest you know, statements in Luke's gospel. It's, it's what I used when I taught preaching to teach guys how to preach the gospel. And the, as I said, these are his final words to, to the 11. Jesus says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. There's a hermeneutic right there. While I was with you, remember these words. Here's that necessity that all the things have been written, the law of Moses and the prophets. We see this all the time through Luke, Moses and the prophets, but this is the only place in the Gospels where the Psalms are added to Moses and the prophets. Now, if you're a careful reader of Luke or the Gospels, you sit up when you see the Psalms. You go, why in the world is Luke putting the Psalms there? Or why did Jesus refer to the Psalms there even more importantly? And he's talking about the fulfillment of Scripture here. That's the foundation for preaching is Scripture. Um, and just to finish this, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And in Moses' prophets and the Psalms, he showed them that it was written. And here's the, what we call the kerygma, the preaching, the doctrine. Christ suffer, rise out of the dead on the third day, and preached in his name, preaching, repentance, forgiveness of sins to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's the mission. Now, this, this is profound. Uh, you know, 15 minutes is not enough to expound it. What I want to talk about, though, is why the Psalms? Why the Psalms? This is where I think Bonhoeffer gets it right. Remember I said that the Psalms are where, and, and Jesus certainly knew this, where you find the fact that God is going to send a suffering righteous one the Messiah. And here's a way of looking at it. I, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. Um, th this I learned from my doctoral father, and it, uh, it was disturbed me at first, but then I, the more I thought about it, the more I recognized it. What the Old Testament promises, what the Father promises, 
what the Old Testament teaches from beginning to end is that the Father is going to send somebody who is righteous in every way without sin, who is going to be the suffering servant. And if he does everything, everything that the Father asked of him, including suffering even unto death, death on the cross, then if the Father is a righteous God, he must raise him from the dead. If the gospel is true if God is true to himself. And I think that's what people were looking for, even at the time of Jesus. They were looking for this Messiah, this suffering righteous one to come along. And they had all kinds of different ideas of what it would look like. Some thought it was going to be a you know, battle guy, a general. Oh, I love, <laughs> he's talking to me about being in the front lines of, I don't, I'm not on the front lines. I don't go into the battle. I'm like the, the, the semi-retired old general sitting in the tent watching everybody else go into battle. <laughs> but once in a while, Linda, you don't know this. I just got an email this morning. Once in a while, the battle comes to the general. We get an email. We're going on Monday to the DR for our annual retreat. 108 people are going to be there. We go there every year. Punta Cana, that's where all the people are dying, you know, from bad alcohol and other things. And we're going there. So anyway. But we don't drink. Yeah, we don't drink. So we're good. Anyway. So anyway, we get an email from the director of all this who's overseeing the operations. There is a severe storm gathering in the southeast. We're, We're monitoring it in Puerto Rico and the Dominican. And we have an evacuation plan in place, but don't change your plans. <laughs> so we're flying into something. I don't know. We're going to find out. But anyway, where was I? What was I talking about? I was talking about something. Um, oh, the suffering righteous one. Uh, you know, if this suffering righteous one comes, you're going to, you're going to see him do what the Father demands. Now, when you look in the Old Testament, you don't find as many prophecies of the Messiah as you might think. You know, there's Isaiah 52, 53. I mean, the whole, in a sense, the whole Old Testament is shot through with it. But you have to read it carefully. You have to know kind of the, 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 the underlying, you know, purpose of the entire Old Testament to really see it. You have to have that lens of Christ to read it everywhere. But Jesus will tell you here that if you really want to know where God talks about the suffering righteous one, you read the Psalms. And I think that's why Jesus praised the Psalms at, at, the, at the cross. Now, we obviously don't have a whole lot of them. And in Luke, there are only three instances where we have the Psalms referred to. Psalm 22, Psalm 31, and 69. These are, these are also in the other Gospels. Here are the verses in Luke 23 where they occur. I got them here. 23, 34, Psalm 21. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And here's the reference, dividing among themselves his clothes, they cast lots. That comes from Psalm 22, 18. So it's not a, a really overt thing. Psalm 23, 36, Psalm 69, Luke 23, excuse me, Psalm 69, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him to him sour wine. That's what it says here. They're going to offer him sour wine. Suffering righteous one. And then this is where they, he actually cites the psalm, 31.5, calling out in a great voice, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, I commend my spirit. 
So here are the three places we actually see Jesus speaking out of the Psalter or fulfilling the Psalter or showing from the Psalter that he is the suffering righteous one. So my last thought to you as we we close our time together is if you, like me, struggle with prayer, discover the Psalms or rediscover them. Um, Find places. I gave you some references here, but you can find them in many places. Open your hymnal. In the hymnal, it tells you what psalms, if you dig around, there's instructions in there for daily devotions. It'll tell you what psalms to to pray on Monday, pray on Tuesday. You might want to just read through the psalms. And my recommendation is don't read too many because you'll wear out. That's the biggest thing to people say, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to read three chapters a day. And they do that for about five days and then they fade away because it's too much. Just take little bites, little bites, you know, little by little. Think of yourself as somebody who's been starving for a long time, your stomach is really small, you've got to take little bites and then as you get better, you can take bigger bites. Um, some psalms are really hard. The imprecatory psalms are hard. How can that be the voice of Jesus? Well, remember, it's Jesus in our place. It's Jesus who stands in our place speaking for us. It's Jesus who has become a sinner for us. And that's one of the things that I think you have to have in your mind when you read the psalms, that he who had no sin became sin for us. And when he is the sin bearer, He identifies with us and he speaks to the Father as if he were a sinner because he stands in our place. Finally, I talked yesterday about how the crucifixion is one of the most humiliating, shameful, horrible things that ever happened. And that one of the things that people in the ancient world, this young lady here gave me a wonderful book on reading through the first century eyes. And in that book is one of the great categories that we don't really have in our culture, and that is the category of honor and shame. We're sin, guilt, justice people. That's more Hellenistic, it's very individual. I sin, I have guilt. I need forgiveness. We don't recognize that honor and shame cultures are more corporate. They're not individual cultures. And what you, you, the, the worst thing that can happen to you is to experience shame. And you can experience shame by doing something shameful, you know? I mean, it would be very shameful if one of us ran naked across Arcadia right before lunch. That would, that would, be, that would bring shame on us. But the worst shame is when you are sinned against when you are somehow innocent and something happens to you that is kind of evil, kind of coming into your midst where you become unclean because of something that has happened to you. And in almost every case, that is, a, that is usually where a physical boundary is, is crossed, where there's been a, a, an assault sexually, a sexual abuse, something like that. And, and those of us who have counseled people who have been sexually abused, raped, and the like, they feel unclean. They feel shamed. They, they can't get rid of the dirt. They can't get rid. They feel polluted. Jesus understood this. The most sinned against person in the world was Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
That's why he quotes the Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he, he was hanging on the tree with the most deepest shame that anyone could ever, ever experience. So when you have shame, Jesus is the one to go to, look to Jesus. The amazing thing is that in that horrific shame, what does Jesus do? He gives us honor. Our honor comes from his shame. And he's been talking about John Kleinig all week. I learned from John Kleinig about honor and shame. We learned it together, actually. We were reading the same books at the same time. And he told me how people who had deep shame from being sinned against, the only thing that helped them was to recognize how Jesus had been shamed on the cross, and the only thing that cleansed them was blood. Blood is what cleanses from shame. And that's why people have to go to the Lord's Supper to, to see there that they are taking into their bodies Christ's shame, which now makes them whole, forgives them, and gives them honor. We are all the honored people of God because Jesus became sin for us. And as he did that, he prayed. He prayed the Psalms. And he died with the Psalms on his lips. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You had a question and I ignored you. No, I <laughs> and I'm going to now acknowledge you. I'm going to honor you. Did I end it? You said some of the prayer uh, psalms were hard. Hard, yeah. That's what bothered me. Because yeah. Some of those psalms. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're hard. They're hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's time for questions. We're done. The, uh, uh, the structure of so many of the psalms seem to be declaratory and then prayerful like yeah god is good and then, then there's a prayer to god almost like yeah. there's a there's a, a cantor and a choir yeah Once, you know saying god is good and the next saying the prayer itself right so, you know but you've been listening to me statement of motive <laughs> petitionary prayer there it is man <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the Psalms have it. You're right, exactly, you know. I mean, there are great Psalms of praise, you know. Um, you know, when you're a pastor, you have go-to Psalms. When you go to people, there are just certain Psalms you know are going to help, you know. And I would always read the whole Psalm, you know, even when it was difficult, you know. And, there was, and then I'd try to explain it some, sometimes or not, you know. But you've got to just take them in. Just let them wash over you. They're, they're wonderful. One of the greatest gifts I ever got was a little book of Psalms from my good friend, Scott Brusick, and he gave it to me because my doctoral father was on the committee that translated these Psalms, along with T.S. Eliot. Yeah, anyway, he had, he had, T.S. Eliot had done some of the original translations and then they inherited them and they kept doing it, but it was, an, it was a project. There were others too that were interesting. Yes, Mark. Some who say Matthew and Mark as they leave the upper room says they slaughter him. Oh yeah, yeah. Those are Psalms. 
the Hatzar Halal. Yeah, yeah, good. I, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, as they leave the Garden of Gethsemane to go to the, to the place where, uh, uh, wait, wait. As they leave the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they pray the Psalms of Ascent, which is the Halal Psalms. And those Psalms of Ascent was what people sang when they went up into the temple. And it's interesting that they sang them even though they weren't going to the temple, they were actually leaving the temple. But the temple was becoming pretty soon obsolete. You know, but anyway. Is there a book about the Psalms that you would recommend? I would recommend this one, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay. Yeah, that's the one I would recommend. I think, uh, uh, I don't know anybody who would not benefit from this book. It's a great book. Thank you for tuning in to Arcadia Cast, brought to you by Camp Arcadia, a Lutheran family resort and retreat center on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. For more episodes or to learn more about camp, please visit www.camp-arcadia.com.